One, two, three, four. Hello. Really? <laughs> yes, really? really. <laughs> well, we can't do it now. When can we do it? <laughs> Damn it, I want to do it. I was going to do that for Hogfather, but okay. Hi, <laughs> hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Radio Morpork. Um, uh, I am Colm. This is... Steve. And this is the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. Uh, analyzing, rating, reviewing, and general blattering on about them. Uh, and today we're here to talk about rock and or roll. <laughs> In case you couldn't tell from our little our column's little introduction there at the start. <laughs> Soul blah. music. <laughs> Very blasé. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so this was actually my first time reading this because um, I had only ever seen the uh, cartoon before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was fun. I haven't read it in a very long time now and um, I have opinions on it. So, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Such well, opinions. But well, let's before, hear them. But first, let's, but first, let's, um, let's we might as well, people's memories. Yeah. We'll go over the synopsis of it. For anyone who isn't overly familiar with the book, just to kind of refresh your memory. So, Soul Music follows the band with rocks in through their short-lived but glamorous musical career. The band consists of Imp Y. Selen, a young man from... Impy Kellen. Impy Kellen? Is that how it's pronounced in the animation, is it? Ah, of course. Impy Kellen. Okay, good name. Uh, A young lad from Lamidos, which... uh, Sorry, let me start that again. The band consists of Impy Kellen, a young lad from Lamidos, Lias, a troll who does percussion, which in typical troll fashion consists of banging rocks together, and Glod, a dwarf who plays horn and is not ashamed to admit he is in it for the money. After Imp changes his name to Buddy and Lias changes his name to Cliff, the band is discovered by Cut My Own Throat Dibbler. Dibbler becomes the disc's first music manager and their relationship with him and the public is a satire of the music industry in general. On the sidelines we have Death, who is in one of his philosophical moods as last seen in Reaperman. He takes a holiday in search of a way to forget his more troubling memories, such as the recent demise of his adopted daughter Isabel and her husband Mort. In the meantime, his granddaughter Susan discovers the truth about her heritage when she is forced to stand in for her missing grandfather. Complications ensue when she falls for Buddy and tries to save him from his live fast and die young destiny as the Discworld's first rock star. Buddy wants to do a free concert and after Dibbler figures out how much money he can make by selling t-shirts, sausage and buns, etc. to the audience, he agrees. A large number of bands, all who, who have formed in response to the original band Rocks In, participate in the largest concert of all time. Afterwards, the band flees f- flee from their crazed fans. They are pursued by the Angry Musicians Guild, Cut Me On Throat Dibbler, Susan and Death. At a sharp curve over a cliff, the band technically falls to their death, but Death himself steps in. He ensures that according to history, Imp never arrived at Ankh-Morpork and is working in Querm, where Susan goes to meet him. So that's a little bit lengthy, but there's there's a lot to cover in that book. So that's essentially the plot. So let me ask, seeing as you were the first, this is the first time you've read this book. What did you think? Um, I don't know. Up and down. Um, like I, I found it. Uh, this this seems like a very glib, like damning of faint praise, but I found it really readable. Like I was reading this mm. on a, um ungodly long flight to Las Vegas through Canada and back. And it was just, um, it was a kind of joy to have that there the whole time. And I was, you know, flying through and in between trying mm. to sleep and so on, which you can't say for everything, you know. Um, but I felt like, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether some of the kind of things that I was like disappointed in was me 
like misremembering the cartoon or expecting something to be bigger in the book. Like I, I, I felt like the sort of the business with the, the band living on borrowed time after Susan stops uh, in slash Buddy from being killed, mm. uh, and and the idea of like um, Cliff and Glaude sort of knowing this and knowing something's gone wrong that wasn't as pronounced as I thought it would be so it kind of like it took away from a sense of stakes with them for me you know really that, uh, yeah. I, I, now it's been a while since I watched the cartoon in full so I can't remember if it's done really well now but I, I, I feel looking back on that that they like mention it enough within the you know shorter runtime of a cartoon that you do get this sense of doom of like something's going to go wrong with them sooner or later. And I didn't feel it was as strong here. So I, while it's fun to read about their hijinks going around, and you do get them worrying about Buddy and you know his continual withdrawal into himself and so on, there isn't that, uh, there isn't that I suppose, hook of something's definitely going to go wrong for these guys soon. There's probably a lot more musical cues, I'd imagine, in the animation, which yeah. probably helped towards that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I suppose the discussion here is going to cross over and you do. If anyone has seen the animation, watch it for the fucking soundtrack alone. It's amazing. It's just a glorious collection of, like, it's probably pop song what, pastiches. It's, it's yeah, you, you showed me the... I think, actually, I believe it's on Spotify, if anyone's interested. It is, interested. yeah, yeah. Um, For anyone who's actually tuned into our podcast regularly, uh, the tune that plays at the start of each one, I think, comes from soul music, doesn't it? It's from the one of soul, uh, soul music and uh, Witches Abroad were both done by is it like Cosgrove Hall or the name of the, the animators oh, and massive. they have the similar intro where it's like a computer uh, animated quite impressive for the like mid 90s mm. I remember being, like, being wild by it as a kid <laughs> great at chewing and the elephants and the camera pans up around the disc and the tune that plays is we've got like a section of it taken for our, our intro yeah, our intro, like intro Johnny Quest kind of CGI from the 90s <laughs> yeah, that yeah. one that blew your mind back in the day the, the, the um, like little bits of Spider-Man the animated thing yeah. web singing <laughs> computerized thing or wow blew our minds <laughs> but um, yeah I have to admit like I absolutely like I reflect your thoughts on this that it was the second time actually third time now around reading it and maybe it is just because we're you know going in depth like in the books like far more so than we did when we were just reading it for pleasure I found there was a lot less to take apart in this book like um, for one thing one thing that I found was um, Susan's journey is very much like a retread of Mort's journey and like there's not really an awful lot being said about the whole death aspect of it like any any kind of anything meaty in the book kind of comes from the the music side of it and not like the death side of it yeah yeah the, the big difference with susan and mort is i suppose that like susan doesn't have death there to guide her and mm. that she is um like mort has uh we, we talked about when we do Mort about like i felt like the parting with his father was a really good moment where he realizes you know it's huge and he might never see him again the dad doesn't um, but obviously it's not the same as like his dad literally dying or anything like that mm. where Susan has just lost her parents and that's immediately the biggest difference between yeah her, her and Mort and I don't know it didn't like the whole like her navigating her way through grief it's a pretty hefty thing to handle but it didn't come across a huge amount no it you know? really doesn't I remember um, I think we, we were discussing this a little bit when we both just started this uh, how uh, we were talking about Susan as beginning off as quite an unlikable character yeah but which, it's, and, it's, and I like that like I yeah, like it, that. it's good it's good that she's very cold it's what's that description they has the start of it that she's brilliant but brilliant the way like a diamond is brilliant you know <laughs> it's all cold and hard edges and that sort of yeah. thing and it's good but I, I don't find her like I find, kind of find myself um, comparing her a little bit to Granny Weatherwax mm-hmm. but Granny Weatherwax is always a lot of fun to read because she's got these even though she's again brilliant She's got these little quirks as well. Like she never admits she's wrong, even though she's wrong about a lot of things. Like, uh, 
see Susan she's just kind of this very cold chilly character whereas um, Granny Witherwax it's similar but she's got little quirks like that, for example uh, um, what was that one in Weird Sisters where uh, I think Magrat says oh he's a thespian says don't mind uh, her she doesn't even know where thespia is you know like she'll never admit she's wrong even though she's wrong about certain little things like that Yeah. whereas Susan feels a little bit less developed you know um, yeah but I don't think that's entirely bad because she has more developing to do like not only is she a younger that's character true, yeah. this is the first book she's in um, and she does it over the course of the book like I, I did really like the end when she goes back and she sees uh, what's it Miss Butts her uh, principal and she kind of realises mm. oh she isn't actually that tall she's always just seen that way and she goes from literally trying to make herself invisible to adults at the start to talking to Miss Butts like mm. their peers rather than teacher student but I found that a little bit unusual on itself because I couldn't really tell what sort of what way Susan actually viewed Miss Butts because at the start it always seemed to me that she considers herself the superior in that situation. That, you know, she's like, uh, I don't understand, but Miss Butts, like, you know, she's she's more knowledgeable, she's more intelligent. Yeah. But the way it's conveyed throughout the book is that, oh, Miss Butts is like this domineering presence, but she doesn't come across that way. Yeah, I suppose it's more, um, well, I took it that she, she might be sort of feeling superior to her but there's still that very much like her whole world is school at that point mm. um, and Miss Butts being at the centre of that so there's this huge presence and now she's gone out she's you know had her time uh, playing the role of death and like seeing all this other stuff and suddenly the idea of putting a lot of importance into that uh, the, mm. like the world of her little girl school and anyone in it doesn't seem you know as important like whether she feels any uh, more or less superior or more or less humble like mm. I, I like the fact that um, yeah, I, I remember because I, I liked Susan a, a lot in uh, Hogfather and I haven't read Teeth Time in a long time but from what I remember Teeth Time and I was reading this and I was thinking god not like her at all and then I realised like oh I'm not supposed to of course she's mm. just how likeable was I when I was a teenager <laughs> probably you know probably not all that likeable and she like I, I like how she I guess a kind of coming of age thing for her to kind of like for the whole experience to give her perspective and open her mind like the bit when she's just being really instrangent about like death not existing or ravens not talking to quote and the death of rats mm. and they're almost rolling their eyes at like oh this is education um, <laughs> like uh, some of the kind of you know jokes about education think a bit heavy handed but I think it's, it's fun it's sort of like you and like she are seeing the limits to her knowledge that she previously hadn't really imagined mm. uh, you know any, any limits existing so it's like a kind of coming of age and growing uh, for her as a character I liked it but that's a thing where like an exploration of grief where she's just lost her parents yeah. and is coming to touch uh, coming in touch with like getting to know this I suppose like black sheep of her family but the only bit of family she has left maybe not quite as much like the hug for your granddad bit is really sweet yeah, it actually, it has some sweet moments at the end, but I felt like it could have used a bit more time to dwell on it. Mm -hmm. um, like, one one part that I'd completely forgotten about was even in this book is at the very end uh, of that last paragraph after she snuck back into bed and then it just says, and then she cried and, like, she had a lot of catching up to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I found myself just read. I, I reread that sentence about two or three times. I was like, I'm surprised I didn't really, really pick up on that so much the first time, but it's probably because... I've read this entire book where Susan is this cold, chilly, calculating character. I don't know. Maybe the first time I read it, it just didn't seem right. Maybe I just glanced over it. I don't know. But it just, it didn't affect me so much the first time. But this time, because I was hoping for a bit more of a payoff, I put, found myself putting more weight on that single sentence. But um, I do think you're right, though. I do think that there could have been a better exploration of grief. Um, even 
death, the fact that he spends so much of the time on hiatus for the entire mm. book because he's trying to forget all his memories. Um, I looked when I looked in the synopsis there. It says, "Oh yeah, uh, chiefly his daughter and his uh, apprentices mort uh, their death." Mm-hmm. Even that doesn't seem like it doesn't feel like he's processing it at all. Which I know is a silly kind of concept, you know, death processing death. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing. It's almost like. Um almost structured like a reveal like mm. er, early on it with susan you it's it's you know very heavily probably just about ever i'd said that her parents are dead like i, I don't think miss butts quite says it or anything the narrative was but it's about where miss butts mm. is thinking about how to break the news and she's thinking about like oh and parents going to find that so you can kind of gather as much mm. and like eventually then when you realize susan's gets down her you can maybe start putting that oh so it's morton isabel that are dead but when you get these bits when death is in the pub or in the Clatchy and Foreign Legion, he never thinks of that or never mentions yeah. it or never, like, he never alludes directly to, I'm trying to forget because. And there's something like, I understand Pratchett wouldn't want to be too heavy handed about it. And I understand that it makes sense if death is trying to forget about this stuff. And he's talking to people who are strangers to him anyway. That he's not going to be going up to each of them and giving them this whole story of like, well, you see, my daughter and son-in-law died. and But at the same time, I feel like some of that would carry a bit more pathos if you just had hints that, like, that is what he's thinking about right now. Mm. And I know people will be listening to this thinking, well, it can't be anything else. But at the same time, there's something unsatisfying about how all the bits of him seem to kind of think around that, almost as if it's structuring it. That It's like a surprise that, like, oh, what's got that so upset? Oh, it's Martin. Mm. He, you know, you got to kill Martin Isabel. And it isn't really a surprise because... Yeah. You sort of figure it out through Susan. The uh, the the, uh, the cartoon dispenses with entirely where they begin the the thing with the uh, coach plunging off the cliff, uh, and he's about shouting out and Death looking up and saying, "Yes, I could have done something." So mm. you know from the start, and I feel uh, the book sort of weirdly dances around it, even though it isn't a reveal or a big secret. Yeah, um, and and that makes like you, they can't ex- they can't explore his, his grief isn't explored in the same depth mm. that you'd like. I think part of the reason that it's so unsatisfying is because, uh, you know, Terry Pratchett has a lot of fun playing with death in these really mundane situations, mm-hmm. you know, where he's drinking at the Mended Drum or, you know, he's in the Clatchy and Foreign Legion, which isn't that, uh, you know, mundane. But still, he has a lot of fun with him placing death in these situations. And because he's done it twice already in Mort and uh, in Reaperman... It just sort of feels like he's looking for another excuse to do it, and mm-hmm. he doesn't really want to focus too much on the why. He's just like, this is a fun thing to write about, you know. So yeah. because because of that, it just kind of feels like, well, we've been here before. So it, it'd be nice to have the payoff as to why. Yeah, you yeah. know, because the first one it makes sense because he's curious. He wants to actually like have a day off, and then he gets carried away. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, he wants to actually live, like live for a while. In this one, he's trying to forget, and. Again, it's so it sort of feels a bit like a combination of the previous two, mm-hmm. and it's just it's not very satisfying. Like if, because we don't know why. Yeah, I I think what what hurts it too is that there are like a lot of allusions to the previous two. Mm. Um, I mean, it like most Discord books, it's standalone. You could read it without having read more Reaperman, and you'd probably still enjoying it. The group sort of, but you obviously have the whole Mort Isabel thing as a reference back to Mort and then there is a really lovely bit when Susan is exploring his like domain and she sees the cornfields in yellow and she wonders why this is the only place with colour and she never gets asked and you never find out and that that like lovely 
oh, heartstring tugging dissonance of you as the reader knowing you're going to shake your head in disbelief. But I just did not oh, pick really? up on that. Like, <laughs> now that you say it, I'm like, oh my god, of course that's yeah, why it's oh, yellow. That, that bit got me. Um, but but the thing about that is, then it makes you all the more conscious of yeah, this is something we've seen before. Hmm. And I've heard it said as like. Uh, uh, by other people out it's this strength and a weakness of Pratchett as a writer that he will revisit an idea a lot of times so it's mm. like he has this idea of I haven't fully explored this the way I want to and it's good because you get kind of like sometimes he reaches you get like a, maybe a, a one or two good books about a subject and then he gets a great one and then mm. that's great you've got like three books out. but it can occasionally hurt it while you're reading this and thinking oh deck goes off again like when he gets mm. the Hogfather and it's like Death is Santa Claus. You're like, yeah. yes, brilliant. You know, <laughs> and, and that, that feels both like, you know, new compared to Reaper Man and Mort, and yet at the same time taking that from them. Like he knows enough about humanity from his experience in Reaper Man and Mort to like give a decent stab at being mm. Santa. Um, whereas in in this, it's he's just sort of doing the same thing for a different purpose. It also kind of feels like as if. Uh, and again this, whenever I get into this continuity heavy stuff I feel very yeah itchy and scratchy episode <laughs> <laughs> but um, it feels as if having like had the experience of Reaper Man he knows a little more about what it is to be human and it'd be sort of like a bit le- like even though learning to forget is this very different thing than just living as Bildor and so on it feels like he'd be a little less hapless at looking around, you know, mm. trying to figure out the whole and understand the whole process yeah. than he was beforehand mm. because we've already seen more than particularly Reaper Man where he has these experiences as a yeah. uh, as like a person or as normal people do. Because Reaper Man does feel like a very natural evolution of Mort because mm-hmm. like in, in Mort he gets, you know, he as he gets like he clutches at like a bit of life. Like that bit where he's working in um the kitchen. Yeah. And, you know, it's 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 you know, it's a tiny little thing. It's like, you know, it's like the equivalent of a... It's like for us, you know, it's the equivalent of getting a day off in the middle of the week or like two weeks off, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. which is pretty much what happens. And it feels that much bigger. In terms of like uh, debt's development, it feels so much bigger and wider in like Reaperman. So it's just... It's so odd. For It's it's like it's like the Godfather trilogy, you know? <laughs> it's, it's bizarre because, it's you know, it's, it's, you know, it's... Uh, touched on something really great in the first one expanded upon in a really interesting way in the second one and then the third one you think you're going even further but it's actually just it's not done as well you know I mean I'm not I'm, I mean a lot of people have a lot of respect for Godfather Part 3 I didn't enjoy it that much and I'm not saying that um, they're similar in terms of quality yeah, it's I not do. like it's Spider-Man 3 or uh, <laughs> Batman Forever Exactly. Hey, Batman Forever. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very yeah, enjoyable you, you, you dumb film. Defend, yeah, Batman Forever. <laughs> Usually, third films are. are, are but um, this is the thing. This is like the caveat that we always have to say whenever we start to knock any of Terry Pratchett's book. As you said, it's very readable. It's a yeah. lot of fun to read, and I do think an awful lot of that is all the music references in it. Like you're just kind of picking it apart, and I'm sure you picked up. Yeah, you found way more than I did being like the music aficionado that oh, you are. One, one thing before we get into all that, the thing, this might just be like fan wanking, but you mentioned about Death working in the, the chipper mm. in Mort and how like, you know, he's really happy there. Mm-hmm. And when he has to find Imp a new life at the end of Soul Music, oh, yeah. he ends up having him work in a chipper. Oh, yeah. And so it's almost like, like you know, he's tr- like that's his conception of what, you know, a happy life would be, oh, uh, yeah, which, is, which is very nice. I don't know if like that was intentional, but... Uh, 
that's that's kind of what I took from it. So like, uh, it's hard to say actually that yeah, it's, it'd be nice to think that if, if that was the case, um, yeah. you know. But um, importing into Chipper prompts the single best and most involved <laughs> music reference in the book, which is the repeated assertions of being Elvish, which is obviously a nod at like Elvis, when the uh, one of Susan's mates says something to the effect of. There's a fellow working in the chip shop, and I'd swear he looks elvish, which is a reference to the Kirsty McCall of a fairy tale of New York with the the Pogues fame. Uh, that's probably your Aussie lore. She had an album art, a song called um, "There's a fellow working in the chip shop who swears he's Elvis," and like that's that's so specific. And to work it in a way where it makes sense is because I like I like the like band name puns, like the surreptitious fabric for the Velvet Underground, uh, where certainly dwarves for they might be giants. Like, but when you're doing this, like those are easy to fit in somewhere. Mm. Whereas this one, like, it takes work. To, like, how do we get? How does he get that sentence? And actually, he builds there? that up the entire way through. Because the entire way through the book, you're like, I'd swear he looks elvish, you know. And, and like, it's never, it never works before. It's always he looks elvish, you know. It never sounds like, oh, he looks like Elvis, elvish, yeah. you know. It's so building it up to that moment. It is, it's, it's a long game and. I didn't get the reference. I admit myself, but I just it's it's once you told me about, it, I was like, oh wow, that's that's incredible. <laughs> I also loved uh, just the other band names. One that I really like was and you, which yeah. uh, <laughs> you too, <laughs> and you. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, fun bits in uh, it. It kind of has a parallel with um, moving pictures again. Mm-hmm. You know, all the little references and that sort of thing, but. As I was saying before, I don't think there's as much to take apart here. Like the main theme that I was taking from this was just you know the part music plays in rebellion, you know, like yeah. the likes of like uh, British punk in like the seventies, that sort of thing. Um, maybe I'm getting those eras mixed up now. You know, no more British about this punk, yeah, like like seventies. Um, mm. I, I do like the the chefs, the really bad band who keep changing your name play Anarchy and Hank Morhork which mm. is obviously not the Anarchy in the UK but it isn't in the um, the book but in the in the cartoon the name they give them is the Sox Pistols oh really the Sox Pistols, oh, yeah, wow. which is which is great uh, actually where, like, they're meant to be supporting the um, <laughs> the band at Roxy and he's like what happened to the Sox Pistols and Nibbler just says oh don't ask I start cleaning them off the walls <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it but, um, I love actually that um, just uh, when I was reading the book and I was thinking that band in particular, they specifically kind of reminded me of uh, punk in or British punk, whereas the band that rocks in, I, I pretty much saw it as Beatlemania. Yeah. The yeah. whole way through it. Like, so um, even though it's uh, Imp is supposed to be Buddy Holly, which... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a, like a hodgepodge. Yeah, it's, which is great. It's like, it's, you know, 50s uh, rock and roll, like American rock and roll or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um this is this is going to be a lot more your area, obviously, now than mine, because your first track Beatles ever recorded uh, was uh, "That'll Be the Day" by Buddy Holly. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, it was "That'll Be the Day" by Buddy Holly, and in spite of all the danger, which is a John Lennon song, oh. when they were all like fifteen or sixteen, as the Quarrymen. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, like the thing, I, I think like the the way it plays off rebel like music as rebellion is like the business with the dean yeah and that's, that's that's the key really thing. funny like that, that like, is that is like definitely one of the strengths of this book the way the wizards act in respect to like rock and roll music that is almost it's one of my favorite moments with yeah. like you know the wizards in general like you know i had problems with it in previous books like reaper man and stuff but i just think it's great here <laughs> it's really fun 
Um, love the Dean born to ruin. That was like a great throw in the studs he put on his jacket. I think that was just like absolutely priceless. And uh, what was it uh, when he's putting the, together the set of jeans? Or, oh, yeah, they won't, they won't call them They won't call them Arch Chancellors in the future, will they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Oh, so many little references like that. It just packs so much in there. But the question. Oh, sorry, another really deep cut for uh, music references mm. is when Death takes the Dean's jacket when he hops on the bike and uh, it's that line from American Pie in a coat he borrowed from James Dean in a coat he borrowed from the Dean. Oh my God. I, I think there's a couple of other American Pie references now. You are way too good at picking these out. <laughs> I just thought that was a reference to Terminator. <laughs> also that. Yeah, multi-layered here. I do love the, actually just the... I remember the first time I read this, Now I was very young when I read this one. I think I was about 11 years old. But... Um, it's odd because I had this in a big death trilogy book and you know on the, the, the James Kirby artwork for soul music you can see death on the motorbike which is like yeah. wonderful homage to like meatloaf like on the front of it but because we didn't have that reading the description of it didn't really pick up on what the hell it was supposed <laughs> to be like it says it's some thing double sided thing with wheels and it's made up of bones and I'm like if you have, like, bear in mind, I wasn't really a big music aficionado, and without that cover art, I was like, I have no idea what the hell they're supposed to be making. It was just, like, some weird... I thought it was kind of like the whole trolley thing in, like, yeah. uh, <laughs> Reaper Man all over again. Um, but this time, obviously, I got, and actually, because I'm a huge Meatloaf fan now, I was like, oh my god, it's impossible not to see this now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... The thing is, though, there is a lot of this stuff in here, but... Is there a lot of depth to it, is the thing. That's what I was just about to say, because the thing about, uh, like, the moving pictures has a lot of, like, nods and references to the film industry, mm. but all that stuff about hyper-reality and kind of the representation, mm. like, sort of uh, taking over from people's view of the real, there's so much food for thought there, and so, whereas this doesn't really have that, like, the, the uh, rebellion stuff is really fun, and all the, like, hysteria it's causing, and I like, I like, like, some of the, the, um, the commodifications of it's sort of a low, I suppose, a low hanging fruit to take, like to take the piss out of, you know, money grubbing music managers who exploit their acts like the way he does mm. with Dibbler. But like, I, I think there are bits of that that are interesting just when you see how the thought process works. Like when Dibbler balks at the idea of a free festival and then re- starts realizing how much mm. else he can sell, or when they're about to go into one of the towns and they won't let them in because of what happened in the other one, and then Glod starts mentioning about like a, a joking about a tax. And it, like they instantly got onto it then, and there's this real sense of like something that is so rebellious and apparently been threatening, being kind of accommodated within the establishment so long as they can make money, um, yeah. and whether that will ultimately come back and bite the establishment on the arse, or whether it will sort of neuter the threat of this thing, you know, is you know, is up for debate. I, I think like that's kind of interesting, but there isn't like a huge amount of that. Like a lot of the the music stuff is used more for. Um, just for gags yeah just for gags which is grand but then if you're not going to do the really um, like like it sort of you know thematic depth of rock and roll you want then more personal stakes with the band and Buddy and like I said I didn't really get them they're what, mm. like you're kind of after a certain stage it starts building towards the free festival they're going to have but even then you're not really sure what's going to happen then there's a, the music guild is chasing them um, mm. throughout but uh, and I kind of like Cleet has like an auditor of reality in human form yeah. in a very different way than we'll see and uh, actually see in Thief of Time. But you know what I mean? Like he's got that very uh, like that attitude and yeah, how yeah. someone like him could be involved in like the the creative industries. But um, 
but the, but there's sort of no sense of escalation there of even if it's set it up that you know you keep having these guys come at them and usually it's like Susan or something else will stop them from succeeding in assassinating them. Mm. and there's not a sense of like oh, well when you know when the festival comes we're going to have like every member of the musicians guild trained on these guys there's no way they're getting out alive to build up the a sense of oh what's going to happen so you just sort of meander back towards and more towards that guild mm. wondering like looking at the page of thinking well something's going to happen here something's going to go down not sure exactly what um I, I feel like maybe this is uh, me as well, but I thought like the fact that uh, I I had always thought that um, it was just uh, the like the surreptitious fabric or the whom or whatever they're calling themselves. <laughs> There's another great bit where they literally pass over the chance to call themselves the Rolling Stones, um, <laughs> but I had always thought like they're the token really bad band um, and mm-hmm. kind of a nod to this sort of garage rock or like early punk three chord like you know here's three chords here's a guitar you can do a band That's and, what I was which thinking, can be yeah. really inspiring but like then also just like lead to a lot of real <laughs> uh, a, lot of, a lot of crap I thought they were the bad band and the, like the musical band with rock scene are the uh, um, sorry another reference for band with rock scene and maybe a nod to the fact that the first name for the Beatles was the Quarrymen alright oh, um, okay yeah. but uh, they were the best like because of Buddy's magic guitar and then you have all these other middling ones but the way it seems to give the impression is that they're like everyone else is sort of bad and that the only reason the band with Roxanne are good is because of the the magic of the guitar and I feel mm. there's sort of like I, I don't know something lacking in depicting music with Roxanne as something bigger than just hysteria around Buddy Glaude and Cliff like in um Moving Pictures, Ginger and Victor are certainly the biggest stars, but there's a lot of references to like other studios and other films being made, and mm. you know, Dibbler kind of ups his game to make uh, what is it, Blown Away, yeah, uh, almost to top the, the rest of them. And there's what I mean, there's a sense of the whole Hollywood industry is bigger than these two characters who are mainly seeing it through. Whereas here, you sort of get the feeling of like the only thing with musical rocks in is this one band and all the rest of them are just whatever hangers on that will be gone. There's also then an odd bit at the very end when it kind of implies that the music will find someone else and that like musical rocks in will continue, but it never does, mm. which is sort of odd coming at this stage into this world when he's already like coming back to characters and coming back, you know, like Colin and Nobby are in this. There's very much a sense of like Ankh Morpork as a city here, the way we did with Men in Arms with stuff like you know, veterinary reference to the veterinary and the university and chrysophrase and the watch and you know, it's a very kind of living thing that like you'll follow you'll see followed up in other books. So it feels weird that he suggests at the very end that the music is gonna go on mm. and then it doesn't. I mean that's not yeah, a huge thing for me, but it it just feels odd coming at this stage. Uh, it does to a certain degree, like not not as blasé as this, but it's cert- it it feels a little bit, you know, like the question mark after the end after some films. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. It's it doesn't really feel as ne- especially considering what we know comes after and that isn't really revisited. That feels especially it, it feels a little bit cheap, but you kind of let it go because it's it's funny actually. Um, the, the the bits towards the end where uh, death shatters his scythe and like basically uh, takes a... A plec. A plec, uh, yeah. like, out of his side to, like, strum non-music or whatever. Like, it's all very, you know, explosive imagery mm-hmm. with no substance, which is a lot how... It's, it's a bit how I see a lot of heavy metal, you know, covers. You know, when you see, like, uh, CD covers or, like, vinyl covers and, you know, it's just like, wow, it's got all these, like, big barbarians and, like, epic mountains and, you know... 
a lot of the times for a lot of metal bands it's just they're just not that good so you know there's like there's not an awful lot of depth there but it's, it's all about a lot show. of enemies <laughs> well no don't get me wrong there are great metal bands out there I'm a big fan of many of them but there are a lot of bad ones as well <laughs> but um, I think a big problem with this book is that he tries to tackle a lot of things but none of them in enough depth and some of them seem to contradict each other a little bit like Two of the most interesting things that I find, especially about the music aspect of this book, is, um, first of all, what you were saying about the band that rocks in being, like, the band, or, like, the only, like, big thing. And you kind of see this about, like, how uh, a band like, um, like, say, the Beatles, you know, they are portrayed as you know, God, bigger than Jesus, that whole thing, bigger than Jesus. For anyone who hasn't seen it in the animation, there's a wonderful, actually you explain it better. Yeah, it's, it's it. they're in Querum and the mayor of Querum is welcoming them and he says, uh, oh, we don't have much here at Querum except our cheeses. And some pretty good cheeses they are too. And Buddy just, you know, sort of deadpans, way more popular than cheeses. And your man looks up and he's horrified. He says, you know, his voice <laughs> tight with rage. What did you say? I said, way more popular than your stupid cheeses. And it just cuts to being like chased out of the town by a massive mob. Um, while Glad tries to reason with Buddy not to say anything like this again. And yeah, it's obviously a reference that I said, like John Lennon, Femme and the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Yeah. And I thought like, that was one of the cleverest, most fun musical reference. It's, it's actually so good. I was amazed at rereading this. How is that not in the book? It's such a great line. But um, the fact that Buddy has a magic guitar and the fact that, you know, the music literally just kind of flows through them. They don't have to practice and they're just able to play as if by magic. I think that kind of speaks to a little bit of the way people viewed the Beatles and, you know, likes of even, not to the same extent, but the likes of the Rolling Stones, all of their, all the bands that people idolize. And you can see the effect that it has on people. It's like, oh my God, we can do that too. And everyone thinks like, well, they just came out of nowhere. So literally they must have just started and like, obviously we can yeah. do that as well. So it's it's you know it speaks it's interesting that like this is a commentary that it's making but then the other thing that it uh, brings up and again I find this interesting but to a certain degree it contradicts that point is uh, it shows the unglamorous lifestyle of the traveling rock star mm-hmm. you know I think it was um, it was in a documentary about the Rolling Stones I can't remember who it was who said it I think it was some journalist who said that um, uh, being a rock star, star is about 10% playing and 90% waiting around. <laughs> so, like, you know, true. and like, you know, they're spending so much time in these terrible hotel rooms and, uh, you know, traveling on like a car. It's like, it's very obviously like, you know, waiting in airports, getting like early yeah. cheap flights, you know, sharing bedrooms, you know. There's a great bit in um, A Hard Day's Night where, uh, have you seen A Hard Day's Night? No, not yet. It's literally the greatest film of all time. No, um, it's like, <laughs> Listeners, I'll fight anyone about that. <laughs> um, but, uh, where Paul, forever, uh, Paul McCartney's mischievous grandfather says, "Like since I've come with you, lot, I've just seen a hat, a car, and a hotel room, and a hotel room, and a car, and a car, and a hotel room, and a plane, and a hotel room." And he's basically saying, "You know, this is supposed to be glamorous, um, and it is just that. Like it's like I said, it's not like they're being like chased and mobbed. People are going wild, but between that, they're just like hanging around doing nothing mm. because they can't really and." This does do capture that very well where they're sitting in the cart and then they get to a town and like everything goes mental and then they're just like sitting in the cart again, yeah, watching this sack of money getting bigger that they're not, you know, hardly gonna get anything out of. It is um actually even as I'm saying it now, I'm I'm starting to think maybe I'm wrong in that, but 
it has an interesting sort of balance in that, yeah, it sh- it shows that part of it that literally there it's it's two sides of the same coin, you know. Mm-hmm. On like the musician side, all they can see is the hard work, and uh, you know, when they're out on stage, there's one point I think it's when they're in uh, Quorum and they say we did six encores, you know, we played for hours and it sounds exhausting. But then if you go to the same scene from the crowd's point of view, they're like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. They don't see the work, they don't see how they're tired. All they see is this incredible experience that they're experiencing and it's just like yeah. wow this is everything you know it's 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 i wish they'd i wish it had been longer the book i wish had been long i wish the book had been longer <laughs> because i feel like there's more in there and it's just not quite explored enough and yeah it's, it's a little unsatisfying yeah you're right i mean the re- some of the references are really good and really funny and it's just a really funny book but it's it's like again we're setting the bar so high when it seems like we're being, you know, criticized this because Pratchett has already set the bar so high yeah. and some of the amazing stuff he's written. Exactly. So when it seems like we're talking about this in negative terms, it's only really in comparison to like the other gold he's coming out with. So when Absolutely. you're looking at something that's like just funny, but you know, seems to like uh, meander or not fulfill its potential, like thematically or from a, like a thought provoking or, you know, emotional sense, you're comparing him with other books where he's managed to be both really funny and mm. hit these emotional and like uh, you know thematic highs um, that it doesn't uh, quite manage with this one. I do think like the close that comes to saying something deeper is with that conflict between like commerce and the economy and society and and, and fitting something as wild as music, and then the, the like. I think there's something interesting in the like that buddy is possessed by the music and it's it's like unequivocally seen as a bad thing you know he's almost mm. like a drug addict um and he doesn't really care about the money and glad does and they're kind of two extremes where uh like buddy like couldn't care and that manifests itself in these really wonderfully like idealistic ways but like the free festival i suppose most of us reading it are thinking what a great idea but also in ways where you might be thinking oh if i was one of his bandmates I, I want them to care a bit more when we, it comes to mm. negotiating our pay. Um, and Glaude obviously has like the ridiculous bit where he's holding the, the sack as they're teetering off the cliff and he still won't let it go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Money. But at the same time, he's you know being a bit more practical. And I think there's something, something interesting there with like you have this like the world of kind of greedy world of like Ankh Morpork, uh, like hard finance and shysters like Dibbler trying to accommodate this wild new thing. And at the same time, there's this other element of the new thing that is sort of helping them by, by like, really embracing that made up the, like, you know, uh, romantic suffering artist who's above the idea of money. You know, the, the mm. bit at the end when the spirit of the music says, but when Buddy dies, people will think of all the songs he never played. And, you know, I mean, I was guilty as the next person was, like, having uh, these, like, romanticized longings about Jimi Hendrix or mm. Kurt Cobain, um, like, uh, uh, Buddy Holly, like, you know, any, any anyone else who died young or bands who broke up too early or whatever else. But, like, that whole myth is just bollocks, really, and it's kind mm. of, like, it ultimately it's self-harming that, it, like, there are some, like, artists who, of all kinds, particularly music, because so it's that year, but all, all art forms who will put themselves and their loved ones true a lot on the justification of this idea that like it's okay to kind of or it's okay it's almost better to suffer in this way for your art and that they will like shun money which you can see in some ways as, as a good thing but in other ways as like a way that just helps the like the dibblers of this world yeah. who are then taking in all the money themselves like they 
they love this myth of the artist who, like, you know, is against a man and doesn't care about money because it means they can take all the money. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and I feel like like that's that's kind of the in in the way that like uh, moving pictures manages to be this really fun reference happy exploration of early cinema while combining this much deeper look at like reality and what we think of as real um like the closest this comes like it gets all the like fun references the closest comes to deeper stuff for me mm. is that struggle but it never really gets there mm. and what you said about like the end feeling like a kind of overblown like a metal album cover <laughs> I like I, I think it's spot on because the, the idea of death playing a chord to end the universe it's, and it's the only chord he can play and that then like it takes Buddy a musician to bring it back to life um, was a nice nod to Tolkien where he had to, his universe begin with music and mm. I think uh, I think C.S. Lewis has Narnia begin with Aslan singing as well um, that sounds right which is a nice like nod to that traditional fantasy thing but like that's brilliant and it feels really big but it almost feels bigger than the book has kind of earned yeah know? no I know yeah. what you mean exactly yeah, yeah like death technically ends the whole universe for a second and then Buddy brings it back and that feels like much bigger than the events we've seen in this yeah, book yeah it, it's know? much bigger than it feels it needs to be mm-hmm. like really especially when you consider you know uh, you know the, our characters need to go like on a journey to reach that satisfying conclusion but most of that journey was done on the back of a cart you yeah. know <laughs> so it just doesn't as you said it just doesn't feel like it's properly properly earned um, you brought up an interesting thing there that I feel might be another theme worth exploring but maybe not um, you can tell me uh, you were saying that it feels like Buddy is addicted to the music, mm-hmm. and there's another line that Death has at one point where um, I think it's it's in the flashback where he's just after releasing Mort and Isabel into the world, and he talks to Susan, and um, he okay, she says something to him, and his reaction is he's starting considering something. He's like, "There I am, feeling again, and I can give it up whenever I want." And it's oh. the idea of like a death being addicted to emotions. Yeah, and it certainly would make sense considering like his the way all of Death's adventures play out because it's all about him doing his job, being very efficient at his job. But every time one of these books comes out, it's about him relapsing almost and saying, yeah. "Right now, I want to do something," you know. So you think? Uh, there's the, this idea of death being an addict to emotion or to life or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah it's interesting, all right, that he, he he views it as this like weakness. He can, you know, he has to he has to shut out, mm. and it does um, it does sort of. No, I hadn't thought of it, but anyway, you say it like lend a bit more to his moping about in this book that it's like that with lines like that. I suppose it, it's to generate the idea that he's constantly fighting back emoting and then when he finally mm. does when his daughter and son-in-law die it comes in a wave that almost mm. washes him away um, and I think there's an interesting parallel too with like when he talks about Mort and Isabel turning down a sort of empty immortality yeah um, and that like that's kind of what Buddy is stuck on after the music and there's a thing there with Albert too about you know how he like as his lifetimer and um, like you know he stays in death's world all the time and maybe I'm imagining this again because if uh, we never sorry we never really addressed it at the start but obviously this episode is coming out a little uh, you know uh, later than our usual ones but because we both ended up on holidays uh, on the, the back of one another and kind of threw our schedule out of whack so it's been a month since I've read this book so maybe I'm, I'm imagining this but um, like I feel like the book in, in, in some ways is sort of 
like clear and that like Albert is living this half life that isn't exactly an enviable or admirable thing mm. and the idea of him really protectively bringing his lifetimer with him which of course bites him in the arse when the uh, T5 it's in the back and the, the thing breaks there is something interesting like a small undercurrent going through about like immortality and the price you pay for immortality like in Death's case expressing emotion and you know Morton Isabel's case it was too high that they didn't want to pay it mm. you know in Albert's case he kind of like he ends up living his half life um but again, it's something that sort of floats around in the background and, you know, maybe isn't drawn out to this satisfactory This is the thing. I feel be. like there is but, but, something there, but yeah. it's just, it's, as you said, it's just, it's not explored, as like many aspects of the book, it's just not explored to a satisfying, satisfying degree. So we could explore it, like it, it, we could explore it if we want, but I don't think there's enough there to really warrant a huge amount of exploration, which is yeah. unfortunate. Um Oh, sir, there is one thing I wanted to ask you because, um, of course, it, it was it was pre you becoming a a regular fixer, but you did guest on the on the Mort episode, and and you made no uh, bones about the fact that like Mort's one of your favorite dis- mm. uh, Discord books. So, how did you feel about like Mort and uh, Isabel being killed off screen, as it were, or off page in this book? And also, I mean, when you read this at first, like you, you presumably you read Mort first, so then you you said you had it in it like. Death trilogy so you were getting to that and like did this come as a shock like oh Morton Morton Isabel like oh they're dead or you know mm. did you never expect to see them after when you first read Morton um well see one thing that you have to understand right is yeah I as you said I do hold Mort in very high regard but I only kind of really came to that conclusion recently oh. because as you say there's so much of Terry Pratchett's work that is just solid gold like I never really thought of which is your favorite Terry Pratchett book because that would be an impossible task to choose. I mean, even now, like I love more to bits, but we're reading through it and I'm forgetting about the quality of like each and every one. Like I'm according to our list now. Like I mean, Lords and Ladies is at the top, and I'm kind of thinking maybe Lords and Ladies is my favorite now because I love that book. You know, after rereading it again, I always just considered. Um, all of Terry Pratchett's work almost like unanimously as one giant solid lump of quality. I, I so. saw someone, I was on a, I was on like a Discworld Reddit group and saw them, they were debating about like, you know, what's, what's, what's your uh, least favorite or worst or not. Someone was like, oh, you know, I don't like, really like this conversation. Someone made, the, someone else made a point that I was trying to make, uh, we, were, we were both trying to make earlier is that when we, you know, kind of like talk about these negative terms, it's very relative compared to everything mm. else. And they said, I mean, it's like saying, what's your least favorite orgasm? <laughs> you know, I think I feel like Terry Pratchett would be delighted yeah. to hear that it's like they're, they're all good but, yeah. like just because one you might like like less than others or than some of the others doesn't make it bad that's the thing I mean if you were to take this book like out of the Discworld collection if it was an isolated book by some random author you'd be like holy shit this author is a genius this is like the greatest book and like you hold it in really mm-hmm. high regard but because it's part of the amorphous like blob that is all of the Discworld series, and so much of that is quality, you know, it just it kind of uh, it it just kind of like becomes invisible in mm-hmm. like the huge huge amount of quality that is there. But sorry, back to your original question. Um, yes, you were saying that. Um, yeah, I, I was a little disappointed now, but not. I don't remember being absolutely heartbroken because I was just reading and like absorbing going yeah I love this and I just I loved it all thoroughly so mm-hmm. I wasn't like no Morton Isabel but because to be honest I kind of felt that story was over but maybe that's because it launches into it so quickly that might be part of the reason why he doesn't focus on it so much because I think if he did 
we probably lament the fact that they're gone far more so than yeah. we would have done otherwise. Yeah, that's true. It would have might have tried to down. I just think it, it sort of reminded me of um, when we were talking about Men in Arms and I said like Cuddy's death kind of uh, affected me a little more than I thought because, because having read all the ones after it, this feeling of and then reading it back in order, you're like, oh, all of the things they'll go on to do that he, he won't be a part of now. Mm. And it sort of feels that here that like, you know, Morton is about where these like key figures in the first death book, like, you know, this really terrific book. And then here they're like shunted off to the side and it's, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, like the death series or the Susan series will go on with all these other characters with death, Susan, Albert, mm. death of rats, quote, uh, so on. And, you know, these two people who were such a huge part of the, like, the first one are, like, you know, no longer part of it. And the fact that, as well, there he's depicted as very much, um, uh, you know, after the kind of compromise they seem to reach with death at the end of it, there's something sad about seeing it sour off page, as it were, that, like, mm. he kept Susan away from him. Now, I said when we were doing Mort that this kind of made sense because death prolongs Mort's life by turning his lifetime upside down. So it's like every moment he lives... From then onwards, he's getting further away from the moment he would have died. So he's getting further and further from the point he had gotten comfortable with death and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense. Um, and thinking about it, I, I think it's it's sort of like it's, it's, uh, it's um, how would you put it, complemented or compensated a bit by the fact that when we get to Susan again in Hogfather, she has a very similar attitude where she, you know, she by the end of this book has sort of accepted that like, okay, yeah, death's my grandfather, all this stuff's real. But then by Hogfather, she's like, oh, look, you know, okay, that's all there, but I want to live my life and I don't want to think about it in the way that, you know, that I suppose adds more color to when you're reading this and you're thinking, wow, what happened to Morton Isabel to like make them, you know, they seem to be getting on okay with death by the end of it. And then, like they really soured on him sometime between Morton and Soul Music and by the time you get to Hogfather that sort of lent some depth when you see like oh you can kind of see true Susan how this this thing would be a burden mm. or how you'd want to separate those areas of your life but there uh, like I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing from from a like you know whatever a writing point of view or point of view of my enjoyment to this but I just think there is something kind of sad and interesting about how these two very important characters are sort of uh, swept away to make room for a new one and in, in a way where they kind of like they're sort of um, almost diminished from the, the growth they had in the uh, mm. in, in the original book yeah and actually one thing that I mean I'm in very much in two minds about this part of me hates it and part of me thinks it's ingenious is uh, the moment where Susan uh, encounters the fight between death and mort. Oh yeah, and um, you the, know the Back to the Future too moment. More or less, yeah, yeah. It's see, part of me doesn't like it. Now I know you. We've been over this before. I know how much you you don't really like the ending of. Oh Mort. no, I, I I love that fight and so the bit the bit oh, just where like he, he, yeah, where, yeah. In, where he just says oh, I talk to a god and mm. and and the, like the thing about the fight of like they're messing up all the lifetimers. And the, the sort of the whole book has been based on Mort messing up one, and this has caused all hell to pay. Mm. And then Morton that kind of crashed into a load of them, and not here. But like, the fight itself is really dramatic. I'm probably just a pair, like, I, like from the kind of I don't like it from the, the plot thing of what what the book has set up for, like the rules of death, and then it seems to throw them out the window. Yeah. But from a personal point of view, like I love kind of like Mort, like call me Mort, you bastard, and uh, like that line. I think you highlighted it when we done our Mort episode of like. Death wants him to win. Oh, so he's going to let him win. No, he's not going to let him, but he wants him to win. It, um, it gives me chills that, yeah, every like, time like, I hear from that. From the point of view of, like, death 
it's like they're motivated. Yeah, it's great. Like I love it. Mm. It's dramatic. It's a bit more iffy on like how it resolves the plot of the book, but uh, mm. from a character point of view, I think it's great. Yeah, but um, this is the thing because I think in some ways this moment in soul music, I think it's one of the best moments in the book. It really enriches the, uh, I suppose, the journey that Death is going on at that point. Mm-hmm. Because for one thing, it really cements him as this ethereal, all-knowing, omnipresent being. Because, you know, he's dealing with one thing in a certain timeline. Then he looks up, sees Susan, and he does this thing. And it's almost like, right, putting a pin in that, here's this thing from the future I have to deal with now. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's a great moment, and it really, it's it, it's... It's a great way of in um, explaining how death has to view the entire universe. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's because it you know there's constant references to, oh, I see everything. Oh, I like you know I deal with everything. But then it switches back to him, you know, saying something really banal like, "Do you like cats?" or um, "I'm I'm in the mood for a curry." You know, so it kind of feels like this is a character who is like kind of two people. But I think that scene kind of brings it together in a yeah. really, really nice way. It kind of makes you see that, yes, this is a character who can hold conversations like this, but he is also death. You know, he is like mm. a di- almost divine kind of like creature of the Discworld, you know? So it's great, great character building. Um, what I don't like about it is the fact that it, it for me in a way it sullies the ending in Mort, which is probably the complete opposite of what you're thinking. Because like I love the simplicity of that ending, the fact that like uh, Death just goes fine, turns over the hourglass, and he just lets them live, and then there's that brief ending where Mort is talking to him at the at the Princess Kelly's uh, coronation. Coronation, yes, sorry, and. Um, I just I love the simplicity of it, and it just it feels like a very human story. So it's it's basically human versus divine entity. You know, mm-hmm. I love the human part of him, but I also love the divine entity part, and I can't have both. You know, that's yeah. the problem. Like in in Mort, I'm seeing the human side of death, and I love that. In soul music, you're seeing the divine entity that is like eternal, and I love that. But you can't marry the two, you know. In a way, yeah. it's, it's difficult to explain, but I think you know what I mean. I, I think I do. It's like infinity is a hard thing to write. Like it's like imagining trying to write a story from the point of view of God or something like mm. that. You know, I don't know how you do it. And I think there's like a wonderful metatextual bit with when it goes back to the the uh, fight Mort, and he's just able to take over. And you, as the reader, if you've read Mort before. Yeah, like you remember that it's this big bit, and then you can see how he can just step outside it and have this other conversation, and mm. how he literally flags up like I can remember the future, so I know how all this is going to end out, and it sort of retroactively takes the stakes out of Mort because you know he knows, mm. but um, like I I think for like what it does for this book, that's a really amazing way of doing it in a way that like mm. because it kind of jars you and because that like I said that divine infinite thing is so hard to comprehend it kind of forces you to comprehend it in a way that runs against how you comprehend the events of that book you know like yeah. the very fact that you're feeling that dissonance of like oh but you know that isn't that's kind of screwing with my my perception my perception a bit more is I almost feel like the intended effect of it you know is, yeah. is to kind of say like like no, I agree with the, you. Actually, these bits yeah. are always going to be bigger for you, the reader, and for the characters than it is for Death because he's so beyond any of us. Uh, but I still like sympathize with you like that. Sometimes you you kind of love these certain scenes so much that it's it's just you don't want them toyed with. It's like all the second times Final Fantasy Seven has 
gone back and are the wider Final Fantasy VII franchise has gone back to like Nibelheim or Nibelheim or Nibelheim how do you pronounce it? Uh, Nibelheim Nibelheim you know and like like had like retreads of those like iconic bits like that just Mm. leave it alone I know what you mean yeah Um, it's it's, 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 in a way it's almost like a remake no it's it's, it's like a sequel prequel whatever you want to call it you know like George Lucas and the um, the Star Wars things cuts to the Tinkerbell stuff like that yeah Yeah, that's it Um, yeah it's it's not it's obviously nowhere near as bad as that but yeah it, it always feels like a little irksome when someone uh, tampers with something that you love you know and like that is like I, I love the ending of that and even though he does improve on it he changes it in a way it's not like he went back and rewrote Mort mm-hmm. or anything but um, it just it changes it and it's it's unsettling I think ultimately it is a really good good thing and a good scene it's just it's it's a little difficult to read at the same time you know yeah. so um, yeah it's an odd one um trying to think now what other points did I have I think I had something here on uh, we talked a lot about that scene there but um, just here's one that we we talked a lot about uh, how soul music had their problems about it but is there anything about that in particular that you I mean other than the music side which we've also talked a lot about I think we should talk about the Grim Squeaker for a little bit who like really uh, comes into his own yeah he really like becomes really well characterised in this one um, I just think he's he's great as a mischievous little like character. He's a great asset for death mm-hmm. and the death novels. And um, this one, I, I can't remember. I can't remember the uh, how he goes in the Hogfather. I know he's there, um, but I just feel like this one's a really strong moment. And the banter between him and quote the Raven is yeah. terrific. It's 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 one of those ones that if I didn't know there was going to be more of it later I'd be like oh please let there be more of that later it's just really really good yeah they're a lovely double act um, actually think about it there's, there's a lot of uh, foreshadowing for Hogfather here where like it mentions the Hogfather multiple mm, times yeah yeah um, when, when the tooth fairy comes up and then uh, yeah. yeah all that sort of bit yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they just they, they make for a very nice double act. That you have, I mean, essentially two quite solemn characters in Death and Susan, mm. like uh, anchoring this book as to like anchor Hogfather uh, later. Um, so it's nice to have like just complete comic relief. Uh, yeah, when a comic relief is just so endearing and fun. And um, I feel there was a kind of a proto uh, prototype quote the Raven in uh, Mort, isn't there? In um, uh, what's what's the wizard's name again? I've... Oh. Um, something well, cut well, cut it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, he doesn't he have a raven or or is it the knocker I'm thinking of? Is it? Yeah, he has a, he has a door knocker. The door knocker. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, there does feel like a little bit of that in him as well. Yeah. Oh wait, no, isn't there um, in Eric? There's a uh, is the parrot. The parrot. parrot, parrot yeah. Eric, yeah. It's funny how like there's a lot of these little uh, you know wizards uh, side talking sidekicks, and they're always that snarky kind of sidekick. You know, you never get like a. You never get a polite one. <laughs> What's the deal with that? Wizards <laughs> oh, are pretty, you know, earnest, uh, up their own arse kind of guys. You don't have a sarcastic sense of humour when you spend so much time around them. That's but again, true. that's I suppose that's a good good part of them coming back to these ideas that like you touch on them in it with the door knocker and the, with the mm. pirate, and then he like reaches a sort of perfection for them with Pote. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and it's, I'm glad that he's there. It's, it's I'd imagine that. Um, Terry Pratchett always wanted to have uh, the death of well not always wanted but ever since Reaper Man when the Death of Rats became a thing yeah. he was like this guy's definitely going to have to be there more he's going to have a lot of fun no, he it. said uh, he said it was like he said beware of the um, side characters you make you never know where they're going to go like he said he left him in almost for a joke and then it sort oh, really? of yeah he kind of took off from there 
he was um, great. he's just like so great like just the idea of him is just a brilliant yeah. brilliant idea I also think it's funny um, the, the business with the uh, Clashing Foreign Legion and the, the running joke about them forgetting sort of worked in for me but you have a similar well not similar but like a repetitive running joke of quote with eyeballs which I just found really funny and I think the difference is everyone is so aware of how single-minded he is like Susan and even the dead rats seem kind of exasperated by it yeah uh, and, and, and like that makes it that makes it funny that he, he keeps like in these inopportune you know inopportune inappropriate moment like talking about something as grisly as like pecking out eyeballs and eating eyeballs and they keep like just trying to drag him back to, to, to the matter at hand and he'll just like <laughs> find anywhere to shoehorn it into the, the conversation like there's something funnier about that like when the when because like the readers were it becomes aware when there's a running joke so when you have the characters aware of that too like yeah to me, yeah you know it works better absolutely yeah, yeah. um I don't know. I mean, is it much of a running joke? I don't. I think it's only mentioned like once or twice, isn't it? I think it's, it, well, it's, I mean, he's running it up, and I feel like it's a, a handful of times, like four or something. Yeah. You know, Maybe. just whenever he's around, like he seems to kind of fit it in somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, what he's looking for. Like only in it for the eyeballs. Um, um, there's a bit in there that I wanted to ask you about actually, because again, you being more knowledgeable in like music, you'd know a lot more about this than I would, but. Do you know when um, the band are at the Musicians Guild and there's that moment at the very end of the paragraph where someone pokes their head out and says, are you lot together? And uh, they just said, right, at that moment, we're going to become a yeah. band. And it's like a mixing of like, you know, there's a human race, dwarf and like a troll. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, was there some kind of famous example of that in a terms band of... A human, dwarf and a troll in real life? Well, no, I was thinking that, you know, the way the they use... Terry Pratchett used uh, dwarfs and trolls to examine race. Yeah, in, in um, so I'm trying to think. Was there like something? I mean, I mean, just like a, like, a, like Sly and the Family Stone, um, where uh, you know, I like white white guys and black guys in it, um, and then uh, women and men, um, and the, the Jimi Hendrix experience was like a uh, like a black American and two white uh, Brits. Mm. Um, so there's a couple, but like there's nothing as like you know when they, they touch up the Beatles and Buddy Holly so much. There's nothing there. For it to um, touch, although I feel that's like a, a kind of a nice way of um, like how they manage to appeal to this like increasingly diverse world. Pratchett's depicting, mm. and it like, came up in a huge way in Moving Pictures or not Moving, sorry, Men at Arms, which is just a previous book. Went talking about all the dwarfs and trolls in the city. It sort of makes sense that the band that really takes off can kind of appeal to all of them. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and and like that that idea of. When I think it's Glad says so like a dwarf, a troll, and a human, and or maybe it's him actually, and you know, uh, like that, if like has a bit more weight when you've just seen the tensions between these things and the pre- between these races in the previous books, like the idea of like, oh, you know, who would who would want to see us together? Like we're probably even thinking of music in so many different ways. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I thought there might have been something there, like about I just thought. Okay, I clearly don't know like my music history. Yeah, I don't so. think it's a really direct parallel in there. There, I mean, the one like the librarian being in it uh, and leaving is obviously that's the, yeah the like, Pete Best and the kind of like the one who left before they were yeah. famous, which of course will come up in Teeth of Time with Chaos leaving the, the poor horse. <laughs> that, um, that'll be examined in much greater detail, like that throwaway yeah. thing. <laughs> But um, there's the odd like mute movie reference like in there as well. A lot really of Blues like. Brothers references. A lot of Blues, obviously the most prominent one being a mission from God. Yeah. It's like, why did I say that? Like, that doesn't make it like you know any more. Like, doesn't like affirm our mission or like our like action anymore. 
There's also that uh, the really nice A Night at the Opera bit where they keep asking for two hard-boiled eggs. Oh, this yeah. It's my yeah. favourite Marx Brothers like, film of all times. Like, I, I love that that's in there. I'd forgotten about that when I was uh, reading it. But um, again, see, this is the fact, the fact that these are in there, again, they're really throwaway, which, I, like, you know, whereas in moving pictures, it kind of fed into the whole hyper-reality thing mm-hmm. of it here. It's just, it's there. I, I mean, I like it. And I like the fact that they're all, like, you know, music films, you know, mm-hmm. with the possible exception of Terminator, but I think it's debatable whether that one's, like, a, actually there or not, you know, so um, there wasn't much music in Terminator, was there? In fact, there's a distinct lack of music in Terminator. Um. I don't know. I don't think there's an awful lot. It's not like who's it? Um, is it like Niclo? I love the sound of breaking glass. Is the is that like what was not done the soundtrack for one of the Terminators? Oh, could be. Um, you're asking the wrong person here, really. <laughs> <laughs> or um, actually, what do you think of the um, the music boxes? To uh, to cap- again, like this feels like this like unexplored bit about music yeah, and commerce. That's like, really annoying. This allows it? you to store it, and then you can commodify it. And you know, um, I think Ponder says something about like, "Oh, there'll be no more musicians if we can trap music." And he almost says it like as an excuse to Ridgully to like act like, "Oh, I- I'm not you know interested. I don't mm. enjoy this," um, or like you know to justify why they're uh, researching in the in the first place. But uh, again, that's this you know interesting thing about. The opposition between art and commerce that doesn't feel fully teased out. Mm-hmm. Also, for Ponder the high energy building and Hex again foreshadows how great. Lots of great foreshadowing uh, in this yeah. actually, and just the whole the unseen university has done really, really well here. Like I, I like yeah. that Reed Coley is very much the only sane man, and you know, caught between the kind of the older wizards who are just so mm-hmm. uh, anachronistically, ridiculously, brilliantly. Uh, embracing the youth rebellion of music at Roxin, and then the students that are actually complete workaholics uh, <laughs> staying at the you know working in the building, and I love how sort of um pathetic he makes the students seem. That thing of like, oh, he's called was it like Big Mad Drongo because he drank half a pint of shandy once. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love the fact that he's Big Mad Drongo. What's your actual name? That's Adrian, and then he's referred to as Big Mad, Mad Adrian, Adrian for yeah. a good long bit of it. I actually, I like how Ridicoli himself is actually developed here because it's not, I don't think like, it, like he has lots of funny moments mm-hmm. throughout this book, but he's developed in a very straight way, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like looking at his character a little more, exploring what makes him tick. It's all very organic, you know, it's just like he's basically here to solve a bit of a puzzle and he sort of does. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. in, in a way, like he not actually... It's even debatable whether he does. I mean, he doesn't really do anything overall. He just kind of observes everything. Does he... And again, I'm, I'm probably getting this mixed up with the cartoon. In the cartoon, when the Musician's Guild are aiming a crossbow at Buddy in the free festival at the end, he shoots them with his staff to like div- divert the bolt from hitting uh, Buddy. I don't... No, that doesn't happen in this one. Now. Okay. There's like I think there's a moment where he prepares to shoot them, but he doesn't have to for reasons that I can't quite remember I think Susan stops it uh, or is the other guy the, the other musician says he doesn't want to do it or something uh, uh, and I, I know he kind of has second thoughts at one point but I can't remember whether it's Dan or on the when they're on the carriage like he says oh I like their music and the other Cleet throws him off as <laughs> a traitor um, the the op- opposition with like music and commerce things one of my favourite bits of the book um, is when when they get the harp repaired for Buddy and he plays Sin Da, which is uh, Pigeon Welsh for Johnny Be Good. 
um, <laughs> right, yeah. on the on the harp, and like the whole audience got silent, and you had that wonderful bit about them. It made Dibbler think of what is it like uh, things that couldn't be bought and things that shouldn't be sold, mm. um, and it, it then it has the lovely, fantastically affecting bit where Death is under the bridge with the beggars. And it says they don't hear the music because uh, music or rocks in was the music of dreams and there are no dreams under the bridge. That's a really um, great fit, yeah. Fantastic. Like, like, for, like, really get so much pathos into these quite comical uh, characters that, that like, uh, fell all around the others are. And again, also, like, touches obliquely on that music commerce thing, which would, like, it's like they're beyond buying or you know they don't have the money to like go to musical rocks and gigs or like buy music boxes or t-shirts mm. so this this stuff is lost on yeah, them and no, no one's gonna no one's gonna aim it at them um yeah like i, I love that bit just his 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 kind of agony of like uh buddies like of his last you know moments of um you know of uh humanity and realizing how trapped he is and just begging the guitar to let him just do this one thing and play and again the the, the track they use for it in the cartoon is really beautiful and then he launches into this kind of um kind of like uh, epic guitar track afterwards uh but yeah that 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 bit's absolutely lovely i, I really like it I'm definitely gonna have to watch it after that or after this um yeah uh there's actually not a huge amount more I have to say about this. There, as you said, there's a lot of foreshadowing. And there's one bit that I really like is uh, they bring up uh, a golem at one stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like they, and there's even this great moment where I think it's Glad who says, oh, oh, I didn't even, or I wouldn't have shot there if I'd known he had feet of clay. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he clear, I, maybe he didn't have ideas, but clearly that's that's the point he went back to. So that'd be a great title yeah. for a book. Um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, I think that's about as much as I can take out of this. There's actually there's one line that I wanted to ask you about that I wasn't sure if it was a reference or not. I just think it's a really good line, where um, I think I think it's Cliff who says about Buddy that he's wound up by some strange compulsion which leads him through dark pathways. Does that sound familiar? That definitely sounds like it should be something. It's, like, it, yeah. it's such a like an interesting line mm-hmm. that I'm like there must be something there yeah well I'm drawing a blank on it but I'll have to check that up there's a if you got like L space it's like it's an old uh, website but they have a lovely like uh, what's it like it's like an annotated Discworld thing so they have each of the books and uh, like find all these uh, references in all of them so I'll have to check up on, on Soul Music for that <laughs> that actually reminds me when I was looking it up I realised you know Lemendos where um or Buddy is from mm-hmm. is like that's spelled backwards of Sodom yeah. all I was like it's I love a, that it's because like a Dylan Thomas poem has like Sod off or Sod the lot or something yeah like something like that yeah. <laughs> yeah that's great um, to be honest with you I think that's all I really have now because I mean we've as you said like there there is bits to take apart there there's a lot of interesting stuff with the music industry but unfortunately they don't really explore it in as much depth as we would like um, yeah, yeah, like like this is a really fun book that has some uh, beautiful like highs with, um, but overall doesn't have a huge amount of substance, which makes it harder to talk mm. about than something like this is, Men Arms, which we so good for ages. Yeah. <laughs> this is the whole like Eric thing all over again, but obviously with a bit a bit more depth than mm. uh, Eric actually had, being twice the size it really should be. <laughs> 
Um, so we, we, we get to ranking it then? I think we should. So I think yeah. it's this is one of the few that we might actually be putting lower. Yeah. Rarely enough. Um, yeah, so it's, it's all relative. So, you know, well, okay, I'm, I'm looking at it now, right? And mm-hmm. uh, we got like Lords and Ladies, Top Pyramid, Second Guards, Guards, Sword, Small Gods, Small Men Arms, Reaper Man. And I'm saying this is like your, your instant point of reference is the death book for this. And it's not as good as Mort, and I don't think it's as good as Reaper Man no, either. No, definitely So not. it's at least eight. Now, just below Reaper Man is Witches Abroad, uh, and just below that is Moving Pictures. And I don't think it's as good as either of them, frankly. I think Moving Pictures does what, uh, you know, does a very similar thing, and does it better with more depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just below Moving Pictures at Tent is Weird Sisters. Um, and I think I might put it below Weird Sisters. I would as well. Yeah. Mm. Uh and below that's the life fantastic this is where it gets tricky now yeah. because these are the ones that now below we have the life fantastic below that is equal rights below that is sorcery below that the color of magic and below that eric yeah. now unfortunately i didn't read any of those except eric with you guys so mm-hmm. it's not as fresh in my memory i think the only one of those that i can unequivocally say i would rank it above is Eric yeah. and I definitely rank it below Weird Sisters but after that it gets a little hazy well, for me I, I would definitely rank it above Sorcery because I think like Sorcery it has uh, fun in a lot of ways but like uh, kind of plot wise it's a complete mess and um, uh, and this is definitely a kind of even though it doesn't go to the depths that we, we'd like it to it, it definitely feels like a, mm. a better structured book um, Life Fantastic I I mean, uh, the life fantastic again. Not much depth, but it's a yeah. great romp. Yeah, it's so yeah. much fun, um, you know. And this one, it's it's fun, but in a more meandering way. I think personally, I'd rank it below the right life fantastic. Yeah. Equal rights. This is the thick, tricky one. Now, is it going to be whether or not it's better than equal rights? Now, I love equal rights, but it has its problems. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like character wise, this is a lot better than equal rights. Because, um, well, uh, like obviously with Equal Rights of Wrestling, you have this kind of proto Granny Weatherwax that yeah. feels very incongruous when you've read the other witches books. But also, I think like like Esk, while a very like likable and engaging character, is very much like a Mary Sue. There's not a whole lot, you know. She doesn't. That's true. She's struggled not through a whole lot. Of, whereas, like one of the better parts of this book is how you see Susan grow throughout it. Um, well, I think that's debatable because I don't think she does an enormous amount of growing. Like, she does... Th- there is, like, a small payoff at the end, but I don't think it's you. I mean, most of the development that she undergoes takes place in Hogfather, I'd argue. Yeah, yeah. That at great conversation it, 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 with her, it, about her in debt about, like, justice and yeah. what we believe. But um, but I still think, like, like there's still something there that, you, you like, as we said... It sets Susan up to be almost like deliberately kind of unlikable at the uh, at the start, mm. like, and you see those, uh, like, you see the the best of her hard edged diamond personality coming out and rising to the occasion, and you see some of her kind of illusions being shook up a bit with like you know when she is admittedly refusing to believe in talking ravens or skeletal rats, mm. and like you know that goes away. You see her kind of trying like dash in to do. Like do that job and do it better, where you know she'll apply a sense of justice, and she realized that's much more complicated. Mm. Whereas, like, I feel like S gets a little of that when she tries to take over the mind of Greta Chewin, and then realizes, whoa, a bit not more like a Chew here. It's funny you want to say, but there isn't the same sense of you know, 
like okay this character has you know these beliefs or illusions and here's what they change or you know undergo like S doesn't feel a whole very different she's in a different place by the end of Equal Rights but she doesn't feel like a very different person than she was at the start of it That's fair. Susan yeah. definitely feels like like even if we'll see it more in Hulkfighter she feels like and again this might just be a retrospect of me talking because obviously I've read Hulkfighter even if we haven't got to it for this podcast it feels like she's set up for stuff like Hulkfighter mm. you know and to grow uh, here more than like Eska's and Equal Rights yeah it's funny it's it's that um I absolutely take on board what you're saying, and I think that source or not sorcery, um, soul music definitely does have better characters and character development. But oddly enough, uh, well not oddly enough, that really uh, e- equal rights has a better narrative and narrative structure. You know that um, you know it flows better than soul music does, but soul music I think has more oddly enough more depth to it really. Unless you look at it thematically, it's you know this we could argue back and forth on this like all day. Um, to be honest, taking what I'd probably take what you're saying on board and agree with you. I'd probably put it above equal rights. Yeah, I, I think they both have flawed finishes too, and like mm. you you said about uh, so music has kind of been overblown, and equal rights is like like sort of similar to Morton, a really weird truncated finish where it almost feels like he was working under some very harsh word count and just kind of got to the end it's like yeah. Beck I've got to wrap things up yeah. and it's just like then Esk and Simon invented a new form of uh, magic and they wrote sort of I mean, you never hear from again after that do you no well I think it pops back up in one of the Tiffany Aiken ones way oh, later really? I don't know if Simon does yeah okay we're going to have to read those there. to check that out but, but I feel like even though soul music's end like sort of like fails is a very harsh word but doesn't work as well as it could it, it still gets points for it's more for, being, for being more ambitious exactly it is yeah, more, for being more ambitious like yeah that. like equal rights it's it's not necessarily ambitious it's a very traditional story yeah in, in some it's traditional as Terry Pratchett can be and it succeeds as a traditional story but you know because soul music is more ambitious might not be able to hold that ambition up but I think it definitely deserves the points for trying so I'd, I'd rank yeah should we rank it above yeah okay so new number 12 between Life Fantastic and Equal Rights is soul music uh, this is the first one that I think since I started with the exception of Eric this is the first one that we've actually ranked relatively low yeah. because almost every book we read was just going up and up and up the line you know so yeah they're like you know it's really good and I think uh, well, like, we'll see as we go ahead but I, I feel like you, you get to another stage a little a little like a little later in his career where there's like more of them that are just like absolute gold again you know mm. and like even in between then you have like very good ones so it's uh, yeah again it's all relative like even like Eric's at the bottom and I'd still take Eric over so many other absolutely <laughs> books, yeah. I, books I've read before um, so thanks for listening um, and uh, what should I yeah I always forget all this this uh, business business at the end of it so, marketing yeah, yeah gross we're in it we're for, artists we're in, yeah we're in it for creativity like the freedom of expression man stop we, trying to control us we, we need to get our dibbler in here to do all this stuff for us and <laughs> shove this full of ads for Squarespace and meet undies and stamps.com and take all the money from that and we don't we don't have it but um but uh we are podcast with rocks in yeah uh, that would have been a good name that would have been um, a good name but uh, radio morpok's a yeah, good name too I, let's let's leave it at that i've got a root out like uh, when when me and rose initially planned to do this i think i had like about like half a dozen names drawn up oh, that I'd I'd love to read those. And, and she 
like Radio Morphorp best, so that's what we went with. But I can't remember for the life of me what the other ones were. But yes, the point is, we are Radio Morphorp, and I don't know where you're listening to us, but we're available on all kinds of podcast streaming services on iTunes, on Podcast Addict, on SoundCloud. Um, so if you want to, uh, li- you can listen to us on any of those. If you want to leave us a review, that would be wonderful. Help us uh, get some more listeners. Um, even if your review is succinct, like literally the best podcast I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Don't try to make anything better. You'll obviously fail five and a half stars. Um, just that that sort of thing. I think um, it was um, Bon Jovi who left that review. Wasn't it? <laughs> someone of that, someone of that caliber. Anyway, <laughs> if, you, if you if you want to leave that sort of thing, that'd be great. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if you want to do that, that's fine. You can also get in touch with us. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you look up Radio Morpork, and you can email us at radiomorpork at gmail.com if you want to get in touch about anything. Uh, if you want to check out that list and any other stuff, our website is radiomorpork.wordpress.com and that has just like links to all the episodes and uh, the, that list in full. Um, if you want to pick your own holes in it and, and tell us where, where you put stuff uh, instead... So, yeah, that... I suppose if anyone has any suggestions for other types of Discworld media that after we finish the list that they'd like us to cover. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're toying with the idea of uh, watching uh, the animated versions or... I think I know I definitely want to get you to play some of the Discworld games, which uh, I'm a huge fan of. You haven't played Discworld 2, Missing Presumed, question mark, then uh, it's a (laughs) wonderful game. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, yeah so yeah. if you want to get in touch about, uh, about any of that stuff um, we'd love to hear from you I was having a really good conversation on Twitter recently with people about like casting a potential watch um, uh, adaptation um, I think we did that on a drunken night once didn't we <laughs> I think we've done that on several drunken nights so uh, I, I said um, I can't remember some good suggestions I, I said initially Christopher Eccleston for Vimes although oh. I always I always pictured Vimes with a moustache for some reason in my head um, I it's, I find Vimes very hard to picture actually because like I project so much onto him in a very very you know optimistic view of myself <laughs> but um, I think I always kind of picture him as kind of a Gary Oldman sort of person yeah. we're also trying to find like a better rinsewind on like David Jason who's a wonderful actor and made an excellent Albert and would make a great dibbler given that he'd just be uh, redoing um, <laughs> Del Boy Trotter in, in a different context uh, was really miscast as, as Rinsen but anyway uh, like yeah I'd love to have kind of like get more involved in the fandom about more conversations like that so if you want to get in touch with us uh, we'd absolutely welcome it we had a, a lovely guy from, from Chile um, give us a, a shout out he said he was listening to our Lords and Ladies episode and really enjoying it so given how we don't have our own podcasting uh, CMOT Dibbler to get us big sacks of gold <laughs> for doing this and we just do it for the love those little moments of interaction where you realise oh people are listening to this and enjoying it and have thoughts of their own Discworld and they're interesting to hear those are great we want more of those uh, but um, yeah that's that we'll see you next time for interesting times we are the podcast with Roxy <laughs> <laughs> one two three four hey!